so North Korea would produce a newspaper article, and almost the next day, South Korea would post their own version of the story. So I was like, this is awesome. I could do a comparison between the two of them and um, really explain, you know, how are these two countries intertwined and how are they using the significant other to explain who they are? Except, you know, you can't trust a North Korean dictator because Kim Jong-un deleted the newspaper archive. Hi there, and welcome back to the podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That?, of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. My name is Dani, and I am a PhD candidate looking for tips and advice from other early career researchers in each of our podcast episodes. Today I'm chatting with a guest who had a very international academic journey, starting off with a BA in Canada, and now doing a long-distance PhD at the University of Birmingham, but from South Korea. If you'd like to know more about our former and future guests, check out our social media accounts with the handle at what's to do with that, where the two is spelled with the number two. For tips and advice, by and for early career researchers, have a look on our YouTube channel as well for short videos and on our blog on the website of what to do with that. Before you do so, stick with us to listen to the academic journey of today's guest, Joanne Lequeg. Joanne has a bachelor's in sociology, during which she focused on gender, work, and the family from the University of Calgary in Canada. Following the BA, she spent some time in Taiwan, then returned to Canada and continued in South Korea before starting an MA in Applied Linguistics, which she completed with distinction at the University of Birmingham. But you're not confused, you hear that right. Joanne was enrolled as an MA student at the University of Birmingham and studied from a distance, namely from South Korea. Her MA thesis was about human rights discourses in South Korea, and this is where I became especially interested in Joanne's story, because I also study discourses. Anyway, Joanne is currently doing her PhD part-time, also at Birmingham, but long distance, in English language and applied linguistics. Her PhD title is Tracking Moral Shifts in American Culture, From Dignity to Victimhood, a Corpus Linguistic Investigation. Next to being an English language teacher for 17 years, during most of her academic journey, I noticed that she has volunteered a lot. For example, as an English teacher for North Korean defectors in Seoul, which was a program run by the Canadian Embassy to South Korea, and then again at the Embassy, where she volunteered at meetings with a Canadian diplomat to share information on the domestic, political and economic situation, give feedback on the Embassy's communication strategy, and share concerns of the local Canadian expat community. More recently, and as a linguist, Joanne was invited to meetings of the Open Science Journal Club, the Reproductibility Birmingham, and in addition to that at FORT, which is the Framework for Open and Reproductible... Reproducible. Am I saying that right? Reproducible. Reproducible. Thank you. Yeah, and it's the Reproducibility Club. With tea spelled as in the drink. Tea, yeah, because it's supposed to be that you're sipping tea while you're talking about it. It's very British. <laughs> I like that, though. <laughs> and there, at the last one, um, you've used your experience in teaching to create lesson plans to make the summaries they offer immediately usable for classroom usage by instructors. So, welcome, Joanne, to the podcast. What are you going to do with that? How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here. Me too. I can't wait to dig into your story. But first, let us cheer. 
I have to be honest and tell you that our audience and you and our audience that due to our time difference, it is morning for me and evening for you. So I'm not actually having my regular amaretto, uh, but a strong coffee. What are you having? Well, I've uh, gotten a, a touch of a cold, so I have a sore throat. So I'm unfortunately just drinking hot lemon water. <laughs> That's as exciting as it's getting over here. Well, I do hope it helps. So cheers. Cheers. Okay, then I'm ready to kick off with some short questions. And the first one is, do you prefer a traditional Korean or Canadian breakfast? Oh, I'm very boring for breakfast. Um, my husband is actually a Korean national. So it's funny when we go on vacation because he's willing to try anything. And I'm always boring eggs, toast, something completely bland. <laughs> basic so no um and then my husband eats very exciting exotic food but always boring canadian breakfast for me <laughs> okay so very different things on the same breakfast table then yes yes even for dinner for tonight <laughs> oh, he okay. had uh yeah he had donkus tonight cheese donkus which is a fried pork cutlet with um cheese in the middle and mm. i had soup so yeah oh Made it easier for this evening. All right. I would go for his choice. <laughs> mm. All right. Uh, second one is, what is your favorite season of the year? Oh, definitely autumn. Yeah. Because who doesn't look good in fall fashion, right? It's, it's the best. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> throw on a scarf, throw on a sweater. It's just fabulous. Love it. And then you go inside, have a nice warm cup of tea, right? I like it. Yeah, yeah I definitely like it. And also because summer is so hot here too. So it is. Fall is a welcome reprieve. Oh, it's it was uh, it was almost nine weeks of rain this summer. And then about, it's with the heat index, it gets to like plus 42 Celsius, 43 degrees. Wow. Yeah, it's very hot and very humid. Sounds mm -hmm. like here. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not it's not great, and the winter's pretty cold too because of the humidity. So. so autumn is the perfect in between. Mm -hmm, definitely. Okay. Next, what superpower do you feel would help you most during the PhD? Oh, oh, that's a good one. Um, the ability to just stay awake and just push through it. I think. Yeah. Because <laughs> then you, I mean, you would just you. I mean, I've got I've got a good memory as it is, so that would be fine. But. You know, it's sleep that always gets you where you just, you push really hard and then you just get so tired that you need to take a break, right? If you didn't need to sleep, if you could just stay awake. Just keep going. Well, I'm assuming we can go for any superpower, any right? Any would do. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not predetermined <laughs> ones. Because <laughs> if I was within the limits of what already existed for superpowers, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think laser beam eyes would help or anything. Right, so. just to burn all the readings on your way. Uh, no, that wouldn't help. Mm -hmm. No, but maybe you're right. Non-sleeping... <laughs> Uh, would allow you to, to push further because um, sometimes you do want to go on and you still have a good idea, but your body is just too tired to mm -hmm. comprehend and to go with it. But on the other hand... Mm -hmm. so to maintain those like energy levels, right. right? So that when you're approaching each reading and each data set collection and analysis, that you would be of that fresh mind every time. That would be amazing. It would be. That sounds good. It's it's a good, uh, a good superpower to have. Mm-hmm. All right, but it sounds like you're taking good care of yourself with your hot lemon water. Well, because I pushed myself a little too hard, but yeah. All right, fair enough. <laughs> I tried to have the superpower, tested it, <laughs> didn't work. <laughs> Who knows, maybe one day, fingers crossed. Um, and then since you study discourse, as I mentioned, which is something I do as well, uh, do you overanalyze what people around you say? Because I'm sure that I started doing that. <laughs> I try not to, particularly in 
conversations with friends and whatnot. I mean, I think it it's tricky, right? Because you'll look at stuff and you'll be like, well, actually, I think what you're saying, because I can break it down into these components are, and sometimes it's helpful, but I think it depends on the relationship you have with the person, right? Some of them, they like to hear that insight. Others just get annoyed and frustrated because they think that you're trying to, I don't know, be tricky or be too smart in terms of what you're doing. So I think it really depends on the person I'm talking to. Um, but I've, I've also realized it's made, um, like it's made TV shows and movies just not interesting anymore because you can see the pattern in the terms of the way that the language is being used and the se- the story set up and it just is not as exciting i think which is good because then you have more time to study right, right? <laughs> you're not like i'm gonna go watch a tv show it's great because <laughs> i already know it's gonna happen <laughs> right yeah 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 that that's true you see a lot coming um and that's why i enjoy watching a lot of like what i call like stupid tv shows you know like things like say yes to the dress which is, it doesn't really have a storyline or anything like that. It's just like dumb TV that you can switch off your mind and just watch these people talk about dresses um, and the all shades of white that are out there. <laughs> uh, which I... Yeah, I end up watching shows that my son watches so that I can at least know the names of some of the characters. So Troll Hunters is a good one on Netflix. Oh, yeah? um, it's a DreamWorks production. The drawings are really amazing. That's actually what kind of got me into it. Because mm. I can just turn my brain off and then just go through it. So, but yeah, it was pretty nice. good. I'll take a look. <laughs> and then... The last short question I have is, as an expert on learning from a distance, what is your preferred method of communicating with supervisors or PIs? Do you prefer to do that over emails or calls or maybe using Zoom or Skype, things like that? I think it depends on what the purpose of the call or like the information exchange is, right? Because... And I mean, this comes in terms of discourse analysis too, right? That if you're having a phone call, you're you're expected a, a back and forth, right? And also it would depend on your own comfort level with technology that you're using. I'm fine to be using Skype. I feel completely comfortable with it. And to be able to see and to interact. Of course, and then when you have, if you have one of those bad PhD meetings, so, right? I had one the other week where you're like choke crying oh, no. <laughs> during your meeting. <laughs> That's when you really don't actually want to be on Zoom. But, you know, you get through it because everybody has at least one of those. You know, I have arrived. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like a real PhD candidate Yes, you're now. part of the club, I suppose. <laughs> I'm, I am. I can now wave my flag. I'm here. <laughs> So, I mean, I think with email, sometimes we, you, you get this idea and you want to send it off really quickly, but you end up going through and reviewing what you're trying to say a lot, right? So that um, it becomes more focused. Yeah. So I, I think it depends on what you want to do in terms of the purpose of the, and the point of the communication. So there, I didn't really answer your That's question. That's all right. It's like you said, it depends. Um, <laughs> but it's also good to hear that you're comfortable with all these options um, and you also don't really have a choice mm. because you can't really meet in person. Exactly. Was yeah. that a process or have you always been okay with with that kind of communication on Zoom or, you know, Skype or the webcam? Well, because of living overseas for so long, I've been doing this for a really long time, right? I've been using Skype for communication with friends and family for 15 years, right? I mean, that's why also my screen behind me is, you know, the old school privacy screen where it's actually you had to buy a screen because I was using and wanting privacy before virtual screens were available. 
Right. And so now to me, the virtual ones look really strange to have. So it just, it's a, just a process. You get, you get used to different technology. I think it's also because of being in Korea, it's a very tech focused country and you can, you kind of have to adapt in order to survive and get on with things. Right. Okay. So you mm -hmm. could get used to it. So there's hope for all these people who started now in Corona time. Oh yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, I, I enjoy it. Um, I'm also, I'm introverted in the sense that I, I need to be alone to get my energy again. And, um, so I'm not shy, obviously, but <laughs> <laughs> just because some people think introverted means shy and it doesn't, same. it doesn't mean that you're shy. It just means that you're not getting, I'm, I, I'm giving energy when I'm interacting with people. So in that sense, I really enjoy having video calls because I can be really focused and on point when during them, but then, you know, bye. And I can just turn it off and I'm home <laughs> and then I can just sit back and relax. So yeah, if you're an extrovert, I think it might be, it would be more challenging, right? If you really needed more actual physical touch and interaction and things like that, it would be a very different story. So I think it's, there's certainly no one answer for anyone. Again, yeah, and, and that's true, so that's fine. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> so now I think I'm really ready to hear how you got to where you are now. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell us a little bit about how and why you decided to study sociology for your BA and that you focused on gender work in the family at the University of Calgary in Canada. Mm -hmm. Why did you study there and why sociology? Uh, sure. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm not sure, depending on if listeners are familiar, this was a while ago <laughs> that I started. We're talking the 90s. So it wasn't as competitive to get into school then. And quite honestly, I only applied to one school because I was living in I moved a lot growing up. I lived in different seven different cities and towns in two different provinces and territories just because my dad's job, um, he got promoted. And that's what you did growing up. You you were either military kids or um, bankers kids and you moved around a lot. And so if we meet others, we're like, oh, okay. did your dad, because you, it was usually the dads at that time, did you work at a bank <laughs> or were you with the military? <laughs> so... I just, I, my, there's two main universities in the province, either Calgary or Edmonton. My sister went to Edmonton. I didn't want to follow in her footsteps because she's older than me. So I applied. Right. I wanted to, to strike my own path. So I applied to Calgary. I got in. I did mostly electives at first. And then I kept getting letters from the university saying, pick a major. <laughs> I, I didn't want to. <laughs> I wanted to be a specialized generalist. <laughs> But then it kind of right. got forced into it because I took so many sociology courses and I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is what I am going to be doing. And so then my dad, and this is rather ironic, would ask me almost weekly, so what are you going to do with that? <laughs> oh, so <laughs> this is a question you've always heard. <laughs> yeah, so I've had this conversation. I've heard this, this topic for decades now. <laughs> To which I was like, I actually have no idea what I'm going to do with a degree in sociology. But one of our professors, she ran a session where she had people who had finished BAs in sociology come back that were later on in their career 
to give presentations and to say, this is what I did. This is specifically how my degree in sociology helped me, which I always, I was always really impressed with that. And I still remember it. And that was one of the reasons why I approached you to come on to your show, because I wanted to be finally in that position to get, tell somebody, you can do this. You, there's different paths available to you. So there is something to do with that. There is. Yeah, there is definitely. So, I mean, I think I took gender work and family because it was interesting at the time. Um, I wasn't as interested in organizational behavior and things like that. Um, I wanted it to be fairly well-rounded. And I had always daydreamed about doing a PhD, but I just, I didn't, I didn't feel like I fit into the system as much. At the same time, though, when I finished my BA, I thought, what? This is it. I just finally got really good at this. And now, like, I'm done. <laughs> and you want me to go? <laughs> go where? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I know the system. <laughs> I'm not leaving. <laughs> so, um, and when I was working, or when I was studying, I worked part-time um, at a financial institute and was not... I saw that the, the nine to five path was not for me. <laughs> it just was, right. yeah, I, I wasn't interested. And you didn't want to take your sister's path at the other university. I didn't want to take my sister's path at the other university. I didn't want to stay working at a financial institution. Which was what your dad was also doing, right? Which was what my dad was also doing. And so then I worked there for a year after I finished my BA. And I just felt like I wasn't getting anywhere, right? I wasn't making that much money. I, w I was living in a terrible apartment. It was just awful <laughs> and was really keen of, let's go do something else. So a friend of mine had lived in Taiwan for a year. Okay. And she recommended going there to go teach English for a year. And I thought, oh, I don't know. And then six weeks later, I was on a plane and... That was exciting. It was. And I went by myself, which um, I found out later. Nobody did that. Nobody went by themselves. <laughs> and people were pretty surprised. They're like, so who did you come with? Uh, nobody. What do you mean? Was I supposed to come with somebody? So yeah, it was it was really different. And then I, I okay. stayed there for two years. But because I was I was teaching children, and that wasn't really where I wanted my life to be. Um, I decided to go back to Canada because I also thought I, I was like, okay, I have this dream to get into doing more education. So I went back to Canada and I thought I'm going to pick a strong, solid career path, right? I'm going to follow that path the way that, I mean, my, my parents are fairly conservative, fairly traditional and, you know, pick a good job, get a good career, you know, get a house, get married, have children, get your two cars, all those. That path that is. Yes. So I, I decided I would get a master's degree in um, urban design, focusing on gerontology. Okay. Because I thought there's an aging population and working with public spaces in how to make them more appropriate for an aging population. That sounds like a pretty solid career choice, right? <laughs> because right? It does actually. I, it does, right? I was like, this is grand. I'm gonna, I've got the future set. That's lovely. Okay. <laughs> so I started it and then realized really quickly, I hated it. <laughs> and it did not suit my personality at all. So once again, another box checked off of Hmm, this seems like a good plan and it, it would be for someone else, but not for me. So you actually did start an MA in that 
field. Yes, I did. And then you decided this is not going to happen. This is not going to get me where I want to be. Because it's not only about getting that house uh, and that nine to five job, um, but it's also about being happy doing that. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. And, and then also realizing that I just, I was not happy in Canada. It, um, (laughs) this may feel, play into the stereotype of Canada, but it just, it was a little bit dull. It was a little quiet because, I mean, Canada only has four cities over a million people. It may be different now, but definitely back then, you know, Calgary only had about a million people. By comparison, Seoul, if you count the city and like the surrounding area, which is basically the same thing, it's almost 25 million people. Half the half the population of the country lives in one city in Korea. So, um, wow. yeah, it, it's high density here. So I just, I, I didn't fit in again when I was in Canada. I wanted more of a challenge. I missed the weird things of, you know, why does a carrot taste so different <laughs> in one country versus another? Because remember in Canada, you know, Canada and the U.S., there's not that much variance. People who specialize in geology may disagree, but, you know. Carrots taste the same, basically, in Canada and the United States. Carrots in Taiwan tasted incredibly different. That was something that just blew my mind, which I, I know it's not that big of a deal, but it is when you've never but had the small it. things, right? It's all about those small things. Exactly. And those daily challenges and kind of that reset of you have to figure out everything from anew. And I really enjoyed that challenge. I also enjoyed the freedom that I was completely in charge of the decisions that I was going to be making and the path that I wanted to take and the challenges that I wanted to take. So I didn't feel the same pressure that I did when I was in Canada in terms of, you know, buy the house, get the car, get the family, get those degrees, um, climb that mountain in terms of your career. Because I knew that I still wanted that, but I didn't want to follow the the projected path of expectation, right? That you should be, do your degree and then the next, the next and have your career. All right. Um, So it actually sounds uh, like what you experienced after Taiwan coming back to Canada was what they call a uh, reverse culture shock. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Right? When when you come back and do your home or the place where you're originally from Mm -hmm. and that it just doesn't feel... Like that safe space or that normal place that has always been, because now all of a sudden you see it from a different angle or a different perspective, and it's not enough anymore, mm-hmm. and, and you're just looking for more, mm-hmm. right? That's what you're saying. Like, I didn't want to do the standard path that everyone was doing. I wanted to do it differently. Um, so you didn't only think about how am I going to get to another place again where I can have an adventure. You also actually changed completely from sociology, and you started another MA that didn't work out. Mm-hmm. When did you start looking into applied linguistics or English? And how did you then eventually end up in Korea? Actually, shortly after I dropped out of that MA, I started looking into linguistics and TESOL and applied linguistics. And I had been looking for quite some time, actually. I, waited, I looked for a couple of years. And I was hesitant because it was distance. And this was, you know about 2007, 2008, and it wasn't really popular yet. And I didn't know many people who had actually done the program. And, but the same name kept coming up. It was University of Birmingham that all these people in Korea and Japan were doing it. And I was like, okay, well, you know, it must be pretty good, I guess. There's a lot of people that are doing it. So then in 2008, 
eight, I, I started to meet more people who were actually involved in the program and knew that it had been running for, I mean, now it's been running for almost 20 years. So, and everyone had such good things to say about it, that it was really well organized, that they had all the kinks worked out in terms of being a distance program and the support that you needed. So how did that work? Well, back back in the day, um, <laughs> they used to have um, a learning center in Korea so that they actually printed off the PDFs. So it, way back in the day, you actually have to, you used to have to mail your papers in to them and then they would grade them and mail them back to you. But by the time I started, wow. you know, email. <laughs> and so <laughs> they would print off all the PDFs and it was modules that were already completed for you, like set and ready for you so that you would do independent studying. You would have private tutors so that you could talk to them about the papers that you'd be writing for each of your modules. And then you'd have your dissertation at the end for a 15,000 word dissertation. Um, and then you'd have support for that as well. So, I mean, it was great. Like it was just, it was really set up. And then they had, um, these summer schools so that you could meet other people in the program. And it became an actually really nice community of meeting other people that, you know, had the same problems with like functional grammar and things like that, that you're like, Oh, it's so hard. I can't crack the code. And once you do, you're just like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you found out about this MA program that you were able to do uh, from Birmingham, but in Asia, mm -hmm. but you talked about how you uh, a friend told you about this program in Taiwan to teach English. How did you, or, or what else were you going to do in Korea besides doing the MA program from a distance? Like, why did I go to Korea or? Yeah. Ah, well, I met my husband in Canada, actually, and I followed him. Okay. <laughs> so where are you going? <laughs> I'm coming too. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's the reason that I went to Korea. Um, I got a job doing teacher training, actually. So I was teaching people who wanted to become language teachers. And I did that for about a year. And then from there, one of the people that I was working with, she was working teaching at a university. And she recommended that I apply to the university in Korea and to to teach. And I've been there since 2008 now, which has been great. For me, just to understand what came first, you went to Korea. I went to Korea with, first. Then who I is now your husband. Yes. And then did you start working and then hear about the MA program or did you? I heard about the MA program actually first in Taiwan. Okay. Because a friend of mine was doing it there. Then I went back to Canada and I met somebody else who, who had done it. And I was like, okay, this has got some lasting power. This is the second country that I'm hearing about it. And then going, I went to Korea. Then I was doing teacher training for a year. Then I got the job at the at a university and I kept hearing about the, the um, Birmingham program. And then I, after my first semester of teaching English at a university, then I, I registered and started my MA. Okay. And it took, so it was part-time distance as well. So how long was that program for in the end? How long? Well, here's the thing in my life. So I started off in TESOL because I didn't actually know what applied linguistics was and I didn't know what I could do with it afterwards. So I ended up doing seven modules. So because of that, it took an four months longer, but I got to drop my lowest mark, which was always a nice thing. Um, <laughs> so, and that nice. it's supposed to be about yeah. two and a half years. So it took me almost three years to finish up. Okay. Mm -hmm. Also because it was part-time. Mm -hmm. Great. And, and what was that experience like? Um, what kind of expectations did you have of doing a degree 
from far away. Um, and and what would you advise others to consider before doing a similar degree from far? Well, there, oh, there's a lot in that question. It really depends on what your end goal is of why why do you want to do a master's degree? Is it because you're thinking of, do you want to keep the, the door open to be able to do a PhD? Or is it more for within my field, is it more that you're looking for hands-on classroom skills and abilities? Because those are two very different things. The Birmingham program was known for being very quote unquote academic in terms of research skills and writing and learning the content and improving by knowing and understanding the background of why all of these things were occurring in the classroom. There's other programs that are a lot more hands on so that you can learn the actual skills of how to teach in a classroom and things like tech programs that will help you to make more interesting approaches to language teaching, which because of my experience, I didn't feel that I wanted that. And I knew that I wanted to get a PhD. I just wasn't sure kind of where to go with that. So you already knew before you started the MA that you were eventually going to do a PhD. I wanted to, I didn't want to close the door off from it because I had taken certificate programs beforehand that I went for the cheaper one or the one that was easier. And I realized it wasn't as good of quality and not that the dollar value of it matters, but the quality of the program matters and to dig a little bit deeper to find out what's the program, who's running it, who's taken it that you can actually speak to and what are they doing now? Right. The same. It all comes back to your show. Actually, what are you doing now? (laughs) That's what we all want to know. Yeah. And we all want to like most of the guests I speak to and also you um, are in very interesting positions, uh, doing very interesting research, but also in their personal life. Like you ended up coming from Canada, living for a while already in Korea. And and that's already interesting, like your own personal story. Uh, And that's why we're doing the show. And that's why I love hosting it so much. So thanks again for sharing your story with us. Um, And obviously, the MA from a distance worked out quite well uh, because you graduated with distinction Mm -hmm. and you continue now to do a PhD at the same university Mm -hmm. also from afar. But I did notice another switch, Mm -hmm. right? Because during your MA, you focused on human rights discourses in South Korea. Mm -hmm. And now your PhD is focused on American culture and campus, Mm -hmm. right? And universities. So where did that change of interest come from? And you did change the topic, but not the university. So what made you choose to stay at that institution? Well, this is my crash and burn story for everyone. Oh, my. oh yeah, no, this is, this is a great one. So about a year or two after I finished my master's degree, I decided, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm going to do a PhD. So, um, I was going to apply university of Birmingham. I was going to do a comparison of, um, national identity through the significant other. So I was going to look at North and South Korea and North Korea had a repository of newspaper articles that they had printed Every year, I think it was out for 30 years or something like that. And so North Korea would produce a newspaper article and almost the next day, South Korea would post their own version of the story. So I was like, this is awesome. I could do a comparison between the two of them and um, really explain, you know, how are these two countries intertwined and how are they using the significant other to explain who they are? 
Except, you know, you can't trust a North Korean dictator because Kim Jong-un deleted the newspaper archive and there was no yeah so and i don't know if you're aware that in uk universities you have to write your research proposal prior to even getting into the program so Mm -hmm. i had spent about six months getting this ready and was almost ready to submit and then a friend of mine oh my gosh works at the canadian embassy that knew i was working on this was like did you hear that the the newspaper archive has been deleted that what? <laughs> and so, oh, no. again, I didn't know anything about database management. I didn't know that, you know, I I didn't even think I would need to um, get a copy of that right away because it had been there for 30 years. So, yes, I was like, okay, fine. Um, <laughs> you know, but the universe has spoken. It's pushing me to the side. I'll <laughs> go find and do something else. So we were talking about whether we were going to start a family or not. And if I can plug one book for readers, uh, not readers, listeners, um, there's a book called, yeah. uh, for, it's called Mama PhD. It's great. Um, it is an American perspective. So the educational side might be a bit different in terms of working conditions and schooling and whatnot, but it's a collection of essays of women who became mothers either through having children of their own or through adoption. And it's broken up into three main sections. The first section is having children before the PhD, during the PhD, and after the PhD, which was really, it was really nice to hear just, and to read different voices of different women and their experiences, because it is life changing. It is a really, it's a difficult decision to make. And you don't know what it's going to be like for you, for your path. Right. So, and that goes for becoming a mother and for doing the PhD. Yes, right? exactly. So there are two big things. Exactly. Two fairly life-changing um, times. So I'd, I had read that and I was like, okay, well, maybe we'll, let's, we'll try to start a family and see how that goes. So we had our son and then right. I, I'm going to do a PhD. <laughs> I am bored. I want the, the mental challenge of it. I really want to get into this. And uh, so, <laughs> so I wrote another proposal and I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to sociology because that's what I know. And I really liked my degree in sociology and I think it's helped me out. It's opened up my frame of thinking that, you know, what do you mean? There's no correct answer. <laughs> That there's different ways to think about this. That was mind-boggling after high school. I see how that's still in there, yeah. Yeah, right? (laughs) And um, so I decided I was going to do this PhD. I wrote up another proposal. took me maybe eight or nine months. And I found a supervisor for a part-time distance program. And so then I submitted my proposal, and the supervisor was very happy with it. I went to... um, the World Congress of Sociology in Toronto good. that year to, yeah, just to attend, just to like be really excited about, I'm going to start this PhD and, you know, just to, just to see it. And then, um, unfortunately the supervisor was headhunted and went to a different university. Ooh. And now the university had a legal responsibility to, you know, take care of me, but no one else in the department was at all related to the topic that I was going to do. And so I made the decision to withdraw because I didn't want to do that much heavy lifting on my own. I didn't want to be that student that was just, oh, yeah, I know nothing about your topic. I, I just kind of have to help you get through it. That right? is so unfortunate, though. I, I'm not saying that they were going to be like that, right? But 
you know, I wanted somebody who was going to be really excited about what I was going to do. So yeah, no, that, that was another, that was, that was really hard to take. That was a really difficult decision to make. But, uh, yeah, as I, as you hear my beat, deep breath. And it's the second <laughs> time again, right? So exactly. It's... Right. I'm like, the universe is telling me something and I'm going to push back and pushing back doesn't, doesn't help with the universe for some reason. <laughs> but you get that, you got back up. And you tried again. I did. So that, that was, that was a heavy fall. And I decided, okay, go back to what you know. Just, just read. Like, just read because you need a new topic. And, um, I was speaking to other people and they're like, why don't you just go back to applied linguistics? That's what you know. That's what your MA is in. And I, I couldn't think of any ideas. And I thought, oh, this is crazy. How am I supposed to do this? I have no ideas. So go back to reading. So then I, because I work at a university, I started reading, um, one really good book. It's actually, it's called, um, How to Raise an Adult. And it was, um, now I can't remember she's the, the, I think she's the Dean of Admissions for a university in the US. And she made recommendations about the changing demographic okay. of students in terms of kind of their attitudes and their behaviors and whatnot. And because I work at a university in Korea, I was like, oh, that's quite interesting to see how there's some similarities and some differences, particularly because the my students that have returned from overseas, there's a very different, there's a very mm -hmm. large cultural difference between um, mentality and attitude and expectations compared to those students that were um, educated in Korea. And then I, there's other books that were recommended in that one that I started reading and I got to that sweet spot in the literature where everyone was citing each other. Now, ooh, well, <laughs> this is exciting. And everyone started talking about this one particular paper that as a linguist, I thought, oh, this actually... This doesn't actually quite make sense because the methodology and the claims that you're making as a psychologist don't line up with potentially what the findings could be from a linguistic perspective. And okay. And from there, my proposal was born <laughs> and cha -cha, here nice. I am. <laughs> and, and how much time was there in between these two proposals from the moment that you withdrew from the other university and then started writing this new proposal again. Did you need some time off in between? Oh, oh, definitely. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> I can't even remember. <laughs> um, it was either a year and a half or two years because I wanted to take my time to really get the proposal strong since I knew that I had the experience of my data set being deleted and I had the experience of supervisors moving on to better careers. So I wanted to make sure that it was a very strong proposal. And also because it was part-time distance, I wanted to do as much background reading as I could right. prior to having to start paying tuition. Because I'm a Canadian living in South Korea, studying in a UK institution, there are almost zero grants I can apply for. Hmm. So I'm 100% self-funded. Um, the only grant that I was eligible to apply for was offered through the university, and I applied, but then COVID hit, and they... Um, removed the grant so it was a good application but i don't even know if they read it <laughs> oh that's so unfortunate wow yeah so i feel like i have to have a very strong idea because i don't have that institutional support in the sense of grant funding bodies that are paying attention to what i'm doing so i feel that the need that i do have to push a lot harder but that's kind of the way it always is when you live overseas is that you're always pushing 
I think a, a lot harder than other people because you're, you're carving a new path. You're living a new lifestyle, right? I mean, even the fact that, you know, only 2% of the population in South Korea are non-Korean. So I'm constantly having to push. <laughs> it's just, that's just how it is. And, you know, it's kind of hard to remember that sometimes when I get into other situations that, oh, right, I don't need to maybe push as hard, but I don't know any other way. But you're definitely a fighter. And the third time was a charm. Yes, yes, the universe finally aligned for me. Thank you. Thank you, universe. So, and actually, and one of the, the, the better outcomes of COVID is that so many things are online now. I've really been able to benefit because of it, that I've been able to attend more conferences, to participate in things like this. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's life changing, really. And do you think in a good way? Right. Yeah. That, um, uh, before when, um, less people were doing these things online and from a distance, and now all of a sudden everyone had to do it really quickly uh, because of the, the pandemic situation, uh, that it has also improved in quality or maybe not? I think it's improved in the sense that more people and more voices are now included and more people can participate in things like me being able to participate in Ford, the um, open reproducibility group. Um, things like that, which I, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd have the chance to beforehand because maybe people wouldn't be using as many platforms and sharing opportunities. All right. Um, I think I'm going to move on to the next question because you already uh, started saying that you're fully self-funded, that it's very difficult to find grants or financial help uh, because of the whole situation that you're in. So we know that you're doing the PhD part-time and that you're also working next to that, right? In order mm -hmm. to pay the rent. But what yes. stood out to me yes. is that you have always tried to do so much more than that, more than studying and working at the same time. And as we now also know, being a mom, mm -hmm. uh, you're very active also in the communities that you're a part of. You taught English to North Korean defectors in Seoul. You've been the spokesperson, in a way, mm -hmm. of the Canadian expat community in South Korea to the Canadian embassy there. Mm -hmm. And nowadays you're also working on various projects in the scientist community to improve mm -hmm. open access. So first of all, I have to say that I admire you for doing all of that. Um, but what I'd like to ask is how have you managed to combine your academic journey with all these extra activities? <laughs> how do you not overburden yourself? Because you don't have that superpower, do you, of not sleeping? <laughs> Well, the multiple naps, the strategic napping that I've been taking to get through this, uh, <laughs> that's one thing. Um, I also have, my job is very um, particular. It sounds like I'm I'm working a lot, but I'm, well, I am working a lot, but <laughs> my employment situation is quite unique in that we, the semester is 15 weeks and there's two semesters in the year. We effectively have 26 weeks paid vacation a year. Okay. So, yeah, there's not there's not a lot of time pressure in that sense from the local university that I work at, which means I have a lot more time to be able to participate in these different volunteering things. And because, you know, I've been really fortunate in my life in that I've I mean, I've obviously had my own challenges, but I've had a lot of opportunities to take advantage of things. And I just I need to give back right? I mean, people gave me chances. Almost all of my jobs, everything has been because of networking. And meeting so many different people and being able to travel a lot throughout Asia, I've seen a lot of different 
circumstances and lifestyles and you know you just sometimes you win the birth lottery compared to other people for no fault of their own so if there's something that i can do to be able to help out you know it, it's not like i can join habitat for, Human for humanity mm -hmm. and build a house <laughs> I got no skills there, but <laughs> if there is something that I can do within the skill set that I have to be able to better society, I, I feel like I have the responsibility to do that. And it, it may be small, but I don't know what the impact will be. And part of that is also just because of teaching for so many years, right? You hear so many people's different stories and chances and paths that they're on. And it's really, it, it impacts you in a, in a strong way. And I feel that there is sometimes there's becoming a really large disconnect between academia and the public. And I think that there needs to be more of a bridge to meld it together. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the right word, but right. Well, yeah. I've had uh, a conversation and I've also been invited to another podcast myself in which I spoke about doing internships and volunteering um, mm -hmm. and how much you should be doing as a student or a PhD candidate for free. Right. Um, so on the one hand, mm -hmm. there's volunteering mm -hmm. where, as you say, you're giving back to the community. And if you have the time and capability to do that, then that's a wonderful thing. But if mm -hmm. people are asking you to do things for free that are more work related, it's always a question of whether you should be mm -hmm. doing that and taking that as an opportunity. Because mm -hmm. uh, some people might frame it as an opportunity because sometimes volunteering or interning somewhere does give you a new set of skills or helps you build your resume. And then the question, it's a really fine line mm -hmm. of where you should and where you shouldn't be doing that. Do you have something to say about that? I, I think that's a really good point. And I think that's part of the reason why I'm happy that I waited to do a PhD later on so that I could get some of those life skills. So I could have some of that time to be able to say, yes, I want to volunteer at this organization for myself and to see what it is. And later on to say, I have more financial stability. I know what my skills are that I can provide for, as a service, right? Because I don't know, internships, I think have become, I don't know, I, that's, it's a tricky answer, right? I mean, you need the skill set, you need to be networking, but it also depends on where you are, right? Where I am, there's very few opportunities to volunteer because um, a lot of the, legally a lot of the things with your visa hmm. make it illegal you can't volunteer in korea okay <laughs> because they assume you'll be doing free language hmm. teaching right and that you'll be taking um, somebody's profit away and that you'll call it volunteering but you're actually getting paid for it so that's why a lot of the things i've done have been online or very through the proper channels to get it done but no i'm happy that we got to touch upon this what i think is a very important uh, topic um, but that brings us to the very last question that you've already mentioned, and that relates to the overall package of doing the PhD, the work and volunteering. And that is, what are you going to do with that? Um, I, I don't know, quite honestly. I, I don't picture myself going into any sort of corporate position full time permanently. I just, I don't like that style of work. I like having a strange mishmash of things going on. Um, I like it being really busy and then having the slow times again. So um, I picture myself doing something, still keeping a foot in academia. I 
being involved in maybe the public sector somewhat, being involved maybe in some private collaborations as well. I, I, it's exciting. I think also it's going to be that I don't even know what opportunities are there yet because I'm still so early in my program. Again, I mean, I just found out about for, about open reproducibility and open science and things like that. And I want to explore more. I want to network more to see what what can I do? Because I, I don't even know sometimes, right? I mean, there's so many courses out there right now that are talking about identifying what your skills are and what's your skill set so that you can be outside of academia, because I, I don't know for where you are, but there's definitely some people are a bit concerned in terms of where mm -hmm. academia is going and the types That's of positions fine. that we can get. And I think that diversifying your skills, you can never go wrong, exactly. right? Um, Tara Brabazon, um, she's the Dean of Graduate School at Flinders University. She does an amazing podcast and she talks about the, the T skills where the, the lengthwise of the T is your incredible depth of knowledge within your PhD. But the top of the T is where can you use all of those skills? What, what different industries and areas and whatnot? And so I'm trying to branch out more in those skills. And that to me is my volunteering is that I have my main area that I'm very specialized in, but who can I, who can I tell it to? Who can I work with? And to be able to demonstrate and sell my skills and my abilities to them. Oh, that's a really good uh, an analogy, that T. Uh, what is the name of that podcast? Um, she, her name is Tara Brabazon and she's uh, the Dean of Flinders University. She's got a YouTube channel and she's on Twitter as well. So she, she gives very, very good advice to graduate students of just Here's what it is. She has, she has clearly defined opinions. All right. That sounds interesting. I'm going to look into it. <laughs> All right. So now we don't know that you don't know yet what you're going to do with that, but that there definitely is a lot of things you can do with that. Um, I'm going to finish up with some mm -hmm. more short questions that require only short answers. Sure. <laughs> what was the most important conference for you that you have been to? I think probably I came. It's that's the name of it. I came um, because there were workshops that I got to attend in terms of meeting and actually develop friendships online through Zoom <laughs> with other conference attendees, and to just hear how people from different backgrounds, all using corpus linguistics, were doing such different projects, but still we were all interrelated in the same way. Okay, nice. Um, we already talked about this a little bit, um, and I know that you're fully self-funded, mm. but have you received a scholarship or a grant mm. for any other things? <laughs> no, because I can't apply for anything. Right. Because, yeah, because Canada, I'm a non-resident of Canada. I'm not a Korean. I don't attend a Korean institution. There's, there's nothing. What do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? I don't know yet. I, w I would hope that soon it will be my media engagement, quite honestly. I don't think many people know what linguists do, particularly applied linguists. And I, I don't know that there's a, enough communication. But I think that, yeah, hopefully my media engagement in terms of doing things like this to get, let people know that linguists are out there. We can facilitate communication. We can help out, hire linguists. <laughs> so we should start following you on Twitter. Yes, please. That would be lovely. What's your handle? 
at Joanne McQuig three. All right. We'll make sure that people will be able to find this next to the episode. Thank you. Next question is, uh, who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Hans Rosling from Gapminder. He was the director of it. They're a nonprofit to promote sustainable global development and achievement. He wrote a book and was really wanted to get people caught up with what the reality is of the changes in the world, because we have very old ideas in terms of what, what a, a developing nation is and what people have and the resources that they have, because, you know, people, you learn something and sometimes you just get stuck on it, right? Like you hold that world fact in your brain, but maybe that's from 15 years ago. So it, it, I found it just amazing in terms of his use of, of data and visualizations and the energy that he had to be able to share and explain things. And he's the only public figure that on the announcement of his passing that I actually was like, oh, that I feel really sad about that. I don't know this person in real life, but this is the only quote unquote star, because they're all rock stars for us, right, as academics, that I actually felt upset about his passing, because I really think that he was making such a strong contribution to the, the pool of knowledge for people to understand it in a, in a digestible way, I think, a usable way that it wasn't behind layers of academic language. Before there was something called SciComm uh, on social media. So that's interesting. Okay. Uh, and then we've come to my very last question. And that is, how do you relax after a hard day of work? I knew you were going to ask this question because I've heard you ask it before. And I thought, you know, I don't think I have relaxed in 10 years. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think That's it's, the wrong I mean, answer. <laughs> no, I know. Here's the thing though. I think relaxing to me is the idea like you go on a va on vacation and where your biggest worry and trouble of the day is what are we going to have for dinner, right? Like that, that's your biggest decision of the day. That to me is ultimate relaxing. I think in terms of like, like winding down or getting to that point of just being calm is more like silence. And I don't, I wouldn't say I meditate, but more of self-reflection and having purposeful gratitude and thinking of that gratitude for what it is that I have, what I've been able to achieve and, you know, forgiveness for myself in terms of what I haven't been able to do or if I haven't been able to go where I want to. All right. So thank you so much for joining us today, Joanne. I am inspired by all that you have done so far and wish you the best of luck with all that you still have planned. And the same goes for the audience. Thank you guys for listening again and following us into the second season. And if you haven't done so, or if this is the first time that you're listening, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and also to our YouTube channel where you will find more PhD tips and advice. And don't forget to follow Joanne also on Twitter. And the last thing is that we'd love to hear what you think. So give us feedback because we can't wait to hear from you. All right, so I was interested in that book that you mentioned, um, Mama PhD, you said? Mm. A collection of essays? Yes, yes. Um, did you contribute to that or was it something you said... No, I just I just read it. So yeah, they they had a Facebook page, um, but nobody ever posts anything on there. So, but the book itself is it's amazing to read just because there's a lot of different considerations. And again, some of it is very American focused because they really get into stuff like the healthcare and the fact that they have no childcare right. leave and things like that. And you're like, oh, well, that doesn't I apply to me. But no, it's really it's 
yeah, no, it's really nice to just hear some women's perspective about something that's so incredibly life-altering for women. Very good. <laughs>